Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Just remember that the show is made possible through listeners and viewers like you. Just go to thepaulleslie.com and click on Support the Show. Thank you to all of you who have contributed. Now let's get into the interview. Lay it on me, Pops. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're welcoming back Will Friedwald. He is a great writer and jazz critic. He was the first guest of, of the year 2021. That was back on episode number 507. Here we are on episode number 599, and it's great to have Will back. He has written 10 books. One in particular we're going to be talking about, especially today, is Tony Bennett, The Good Life, which he wrote with Tony Bennett. And we're taping this on August 2nd, 2021. Tony Bennett will be turning 95 tomorrow. So, Will, thank you so much for talking to me yet again. Well, thank you. I'm always happy to talk Tony. Always happy to talk about Tony. Yay. Happy birthday. <laughs> 95. Can you believe it? 95. No, I know. Incredible. Can you remember the first time you, you became familiar with the music of Tony Bennett? Probably not. But uh, actually... I once asked that question to Steve about to Steve Lawrence about Sinatra. Tony Bennett. He probably would have remembered because Tony's not that much older than he is. But uh, I asked him about the first time he was conscious of Frank Sinatra, and he said, "That's like asking me when was the first time you ate bread." <laughs> Which I thought was a good line. No, I can't. I um, I can tell you the first time I saw him live. I remember that vividly. Uh, I can't describe every time I saw him live, but I I must have seen him, I'm going to say 50, 100 times live. Most recently, 2000, I think he gave the the previous concert, the big concert was in um, 2018. It would have been in the spring, I think. Maybe it was 19. But I do remember, uh, yes. But I remember the first time, if you want me to talk about that, was I'm going to say 1985, mm. and he had no nothing was booked in New York. He hadn't done like a big Radio City show. I had already just been con- collecting his records for a couple of years, and was already a big fan, but never seen him live or met him. And then in 1985, uh, my buddy Eric Comstock, who's now a celebrated pianist and singer, uh, and half of the team of Eric Comstock and Barbara Fasano. Um, we found out he was going to be in Las Las Vegas, no, Atlantic City, not the far cry from Las Vegas. And we went down with my girlfriend at the time, the three of us, and it was 1985. It was a year before The Art of Excellence. And if you remember, if you know your Tony Bennett history, The Art of Excellence was his first album in 10 years and his first um, album for Columbia in like 15 years. So it was kind of a big deal, his first sort of big album uh, in a while. So it was a major moment in Tony history. And... Um, he was appearing in Vegas, Vegas. Why do I keep saying that? He was appearing in Atlantic City. And I can't remember the hotel, but um, we picked a day when there were still lounge acts in Atlantic City at this point. We went down on a gambler's bus, which means you pretty much travel for nothing. Uh, you, you pay like $24. 
I don't know what the money would be now, but this is 1985 money. And they give you all this money back in quarters so you can gamble, which, of course, I, I never did, but other people do. So um, anyhow, we picked a day when the lounge acts in another hotel were alternating between Buddy Greco and Billy Eckstein. So we saw Buddy Greco like twice, Billy Eckstein like two or three times, two or three whole sets. We just sat there show after show all afternoon. And then when it came time, we already bought had bought tickets for Tony. We went to see Tony for, I don't know, maybe it was $40 then. It, was, it seemed like it was almost nothing. And um, we saw Tony that evening. And I remember the performance. I remember uh, his opening act was Regis Philbin, who had not yet started his big talk show. This was the time when... ABC, I think it was, had bought Regis Philbin's concert contract for a huge amount of money, and nobody knew what they were going to do with him. So that was like the big joke is, who is this guy, Regis Philbin, and why is ABC, if that is indeed the network, paying so much money for him? But I remember he was the opening act, and he didn't sing. He didn't tell jokes. He just kind of came out and was very was adorable. <laughs> we said, <laughs> oh, yeah, that's why this big network wants him because he's just adorable. Anyhow, but Tony was fantastic. And at that point, Tony was still giving two shows a night. And the first time I ever interviewed Tony, um, well, maybe not the first time, but at a certain point when the, when after the art of excellence, his career, which he, people talk about that as a comeback. And that's kind of, uh, not the right terminology because he'd really never been away. He certainly had never stopped performing and he certainly was, was playing to his base to huge numbers, particularly in Las Vegas and Atlantic city, but he was touring like crazy. And um, people talk about the comeback, but and I'll discuss that specifically, but he really had never been away. But anyhow, sort of between art of excellence and MTV unplugged, which is, I'm going to say an eight year period. He, you know, totally, totally snowballed. He totally rose and rose in popularity to this amazing new height in the mid nineties that we all know about. It was this kind of great, great moment in popular music. Boy, the nineties, I look back, the nineties were like a golden era between the, 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 the sort of resurgence of Tony Bennett, um, Frank Sinatra being huge, thanks to duets, which I think is a terrible record, but, I'm happy that it, you know, brought this sort of late fame. And also Natalie Cole and uh, the rediscovery of Nat King Cole, which I was right in the middle of. I was working on all these King Cole reissues at that point. Um, the, the 90s was a great era of music. Also, Mel Torme was huge at that point. Um, Ella Fitzgerald was kind of phasing out, but I did get to see her in that period. Sarah Vaughn left in 90, uh, but Joe Williams was still going strong. I got to see... When did I see Billy Eckstein? I think he left less into the early. Yeah, certainly I saw him in 86. I certainly got to see Buddy Greco. A lot of great artists were still going strong in the 90s. For me, it was, I mean, we all remember our ute. And uh, my ute, I remember my, my, my golden era was the 1990s. Because you could see everybody. Betty Carter. Oh, my goodness. Carmen McRae for a little while. When did Carmen die? I got to double check that. Uh, Peggy Lee. Um all these uh, these amazing legacy artists were still going strong in the 90s. And I got to see everybody. I got to know most of them. Uh, anybody that was reasonably active and 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 friendly, I, I generally got to know, including Billy Eckstein. And uh, I talked to him. I met Sarah once. I never got to meet Ella. But of course, Tony, 
Uh, I was very close to Tony, very close to Mel Torme. I still am close to Tony, even though I have not talked to him, I'm going to say since before the pandemic. But um, uh, I guess I did I did have some a couple of uh, conversations with him in 18 and 19, which probably be the most recent time, and a really nice interview in 17. But anyhow, uh, I remember Tony, th that, that concert at Atlantic City in 1985 was the first of at least 50 to 100 times I've seen him. And it was, you know, still, still very uh, present in my memory. <laughs> Anyhow, what else, what else can I tell you? <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing about you and your career, you've been able to, as you've said, meet and interview all of these really, really legendary people like Tony Bennett and you did interview him. Can you tell us about emotionally what that was like or what the experience was like to walk into the room and there's Tony Bennett? Well, you can't. The, the thing about Tony is he's, I mean, those people that really knew Sinatra say that he was the same way. I mean, he could have a rough exterior, but if you got to know him, he was very down to earth. And Tony is like that, although he doesn't have any kind of exterior. He's, he's exactly the guy he's, who's on stage, who's warm and friendly and adorable, is the same guy. You know, he's the same guy when you talk to him. He doesn't have any kind of facade whatsoever. He's just absolutely what you see is what you get. Um, and you, 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 you don't, you know, you can be very ca he's super casual. You don't have like huge expectations, like you're going to meet the Pope or something like that. You know, what I'm saying it's not like an audience with the Czar or uh, you know a royal. Uh, a royal invitation. He's to totally like he is on stage. You know, he's just very warm, very nice, very avuncular. And he's like that with everybody. He's just, just a super nice man. Super, super nice with no, uh, yeah. I, I, and I know there have been people that have pissed him off over the years, but you really, really have to work at it. <laughs> you, know? you really have to want to incur his wrath for him to get mad at you. And he, it almost never happens. He's a human being. I mean, you know, he's got, uh, uh, yeah, people have been able to get him angry, but it takes an awful lot. You know, you really have to do a lot. You know, you really have to deserve it to uh, uh, get him angry at you. I'll say that much. He's he's the opposite of a hothead, and you don't have to walk around him with kid gloves or you know you know tiptoe around him. He's he's you know very very down to earth. Um, he had a. I'll tell a great story. Um, most of my great stories, some of which are from Tony himself, but some of which are from people who knew him, like his his great buddy and his first vocal coach and the guy that helped him uh, really learn how to uh, uh, stay on pitch and things like that was a guy named Tony Tamborello, who uh, was this huge, fat Italian guy who loved to eat and was a wonderful piano player. And everybody everybody adored Tony Tamborello. Anyhow, Tony famously had this, this beat-up, junky old car that he would drive around in and um he knew nothing and tony doesn't drive neither do i and you know ni neither one of them i mean tony tamborello could barely drive and they certainly didn't know anything about uh auto repair or maintenance so they're driving around new york somewhere and the car breaks down and it breaks down right in front of a firehouse and they get out. And apparently, it's this macho thing where if you don't know how to fix a car, you're not masculine or something. So they, the, all these firemen are looking at these two guys, and they get out of the car and they they open up the hood and they pretend like they know what they're doing. And one fireman walks up to Tony and says, "Tony Bennett, 
it breaks my heart to see you riding around in a piece of crap car like this. <laughs> and Tony says, hey, you know, I'm regular. <laughs> I'm regular. So that's what Tony's like, you know. He's just he's just very, very down to earth. You know, you don't I, I've never, you know, gotten my pulse. I mean, it's more exciting to hear him sing. You know, that does get your pulse racing. That does get you sitting at the edge of your seat. But talking to him is just more, very I've never had to be anything else, you know. Huh. Well, given that you've seen him between fifty and a hundred times, I know that's that's a lot. That's a that's a vague number. Maybe it's seventy or eighty times. I don't know. <laughs> Was there one of those concerts in particular that especially shined bright for you? Well, I will tell you, he did in the very early days of jazz at Lincoln Center. I'm going to say this is ninety three. Uh, he did a concert. Uh, at Jazz at Lincoln Center, but way before they had Rose Hall. This is at least 10, 12 years before Rose Hall uh, had been built. And Jazz at Lincoln Center, I think they used Avery Fisher Hall. And I wrote about this in the Village Voice at the time. I wrote a big story about this this particular concert. And um, Wynton Marsalis was a special guest, although I don't think it was the full orchestra. But at one point, Wynton came out. I don't know how many times Tony had, uh, Tony's uh, appeared at Jazz at Lincoln Center quite a few times, but I don't know how many times he's been on the same stage as Wenton, both playing together. Uh, but um, it was a fantastic show, and they already, MTV had already started the Unplugged series. And just as a, I don't want to say a joke, but just as a snappy headline, the voice, the, back in the, in, in the old days at the Village Voice, we were known for our snappy headlines. And... Um, for instance, I did a story about Anita O'Day, which I called What a Difference O'Day Makes. Stuff like that. You know, we like to have <laughs> um, I did a story about Daffy Duck, which we called Desperately Ducking Daffy, which if you're a Tony Bennett fan, you you get Tony Bennett's connection to that movie. But um, uh, so we, were, we, we came up with a I came up with a snappy headline for this story on Tony Bennett, which was Tony Bennett unplugged because the mtv story the mtv series had already started and lo and behold a year later tony did the mtv unplugged and it turned out to be this great watershed moment in his career but i will say without fear of contradicting the first time those three words appeared in print tony bennett unplugged was in my story circa 1993 in the village voice and i remember that concert and i remember uh the story and lo and behold it turned out to be prophetic so you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to talk a little bit about that MTV Unplugged special and also the, the resulting recording. Uh, yeah. As a, a guy born in the 80s, I remember that, and I would have to credit that as being one of the things that got me into the classics. Um, wh what, do you th what did you think about that particular record? And no, I remember there was some like old school Tony fans that were saying he was sort of cheapening himself by uh, doing stuff like that. And to a certain degree, I mean, you know, when he the, the, they they cried murder when he would like sing with Elvis Costello or he did some kind of appearances with pop groups in the 90s, which were only kind of. You know, it wasn't like the Sinatra duets where they were really sort of. Uh, on this kind of 
big scale together. It was kind of only like a cameo appearance. But the thing about MTV Unplugged was it was absolutely not Sinatra duets. It was just Tony Bennett out there doing exactly what he did every night of the year. It just happened to be on the MTV stage. And Tony even makes a joke about it. Hey, isn't it great being unplugged? Of course, you know, he never worked with electric instruments. He never worked in any kind of a plugged in setting. So that was the joke. But <laughs> I, it was just, it was just the, 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 the format. They were just changing the frame, but the content was exactly the same. It was the same Tony Bennett without changing anything. Um, Danny, his son, who was, uh, you know, sort of guiding his career and his, his quote unquote marketing at this point, made the point that to get, you know, Tony to this other level, you don't have to change the content, you just change the marketing. And for Tony to do what he always did, just in a place where people born like yourself in the 1980s, and I was born in the 1960s, <laughs> so I can't change that. But, um, uh, yeah, that was Danny's whole point was you don't have to change the content. You just change the marketing. And it was genius because Tony, uh, you know, appealed to people born in any period. It was just a matter of exposing them and putting Paul, Tony in a place where he could be seen. And, you know, because the traditional thing to do would be he had like unlimited opportunities to work even at, at, at you know in the, at, at way before the so-called resurgence he had unlimited opportunities to work in atlantic city and um uh, las vegas and i guess bramson wasn't a thing yet but any of those kind of places where there's an older uh, demographic he's he's always he could have worked 52 weeks a year there and danny said that he actually had to cut back and uh, take some gigs back he had to call up the hotel the, the caesars or whoever it was and say you know i know we're booked for a certain month but i gotta take it back uh he actually had to stop working you know in these guarantee these places where the audience was guaranteed and the money was good just because danny knew it was a benefit to him in the long run to be playing in places where um you know there was a younger demographic and uh Forgive me. I keep closing. I realize I keep closing my eyes when I talk, but uh, that's a that's a. I forgot I was on camera. But anyhow, um, yeah, that's that's the thing about the, the the beauty of the MTV concert. It happens to be a truly great Tony Bennett live concert, and when you think about Tony's whole career, maybe four live concerts have been legally released over the course of his career, and MTV Unplugged is. Terrific. It's a great, great show. It's Ralph Sharon, Paul Langosh, and um, Clayton Cameron, the great, one of the all-time great Tony Bennett trios. It's a, it's a wonderful show. It's absolutely Tony. It absolutely deserved everything. Oh, yeah. Well, you mentioned a couple of times, uh, a couple of times the duets. And I think that probably of anybody in American music, if there's anybody who's known for singing duets, wouldn't you say that it's Tony Bennett? Well, Tony, you know, the du really it was Ray Charles that kind of invented that idea. He had the first kind of big duet album. And then Natalie Cole did the first kind of big electronic duet with a person that was no longer among the living, which was a big deal. And when Sinatra did it, that was kind of a, you know, a huge moment for Sinatra. But Tony, Tony's done all these duets albums, which are quite good. I mean, he, he, he told me from the beginning, the point was he was always going to actually be singing live. He didn't want, um, I, I, when, when, when the Sinatra duet record came out, Han, I think it was Hans Fantel. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name in the Times. As a criticism said, this, these are really not duets. This is kind of electronic collage. 
Hmm. And Tony took umbrage at that. He said, no, I was really, you know, trying to relate to Frankie, even though we weren't in the same room at the same time. And with his own duets projects, he's always made a point to be actually doing it live in the same room. So that appeals to people that like, I, I don't know, Michael Bublé and the Dixie Chicks or Aretha Franklin or whoever he's got on there. But uh, I mean, I don't know if I think those records are classics. I don't listen to them as much as I do, um, say, Tony Bennett and Bill Charlotte, or even the most recent album, which is the Gershwin duets with uh, Diana Krall, which is a wonderful record. Oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but those those are certainly, they certainly serve their purpose. You know, they're certainly, they're certainly far from an embarrassment, you know, the way I think the Sinatra duets records are, which are, are not, not my favorite by a long shot. But no, I mean, to yeah, Tony's, um, yeah, his duets are very listenable and they're very credible, you know? Yeah. Are they my favorite? No. The Gaga record is great because that's all, you know, they, they, they really do have something to say to each other, I think. That's that's a fun record. Same with the Diana Krall album. Same with the Katie Lang album. Yeah, Tony's actually not actually think of it. Tony has done a lot of duets records, hasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he Sometimes definitely those has. Those whole albums, which are nice, you know? He right. did, uh, there, there's definitely tapes of him. Uh, at some point, they could release a Tony Bennett, Lena Horn album because they were on the road a lot in the early 70s. And there's at least two TV specials that they did together, plus other shows, too. So at, at, at some point, that could be like a vault release, you know. Well, it would have to be. Lena's been gone for a while. But, yeah. Hmm. That would be cool to, to hear. Well, I think that something that a lot of people also don't necessarily mention about Tony Bennett that he definitely deserves is – I really can't think of anybody other than Johnny Mathis and Willie Nelson who have released as many studio albums. Of course, he thank God he's he's lived a nice long life. Uh, but you want to talk about a prolific recording artist? So many, so many records. He's got to be one of the last guys living that's made records in every decade. Uh, actually. He hasn't made a record in the 2020s yet, so maybe he will before he goes. But certainly from 1940, I think the, the Leslie record is 48 or 49, up until maybe he'll make one in 2002-1 or 2002-2, which would be great, which we, then, then we can make the claim. He would certainly be the only guy that's made records in every decade from the 40s to the 2020s, you know? What is that, like an 80-year span? Oh, my God. Crazy. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> incredible, yeah. Hmm. Well, would it be possible to pick, you mentioned a couple of his records so far, but would it be possible to pick, maybe not necessarily the favorite, but one that really rises to the top in the mind of Will Friedwald? Well, there's so many great ones. The Art of Excellence is a terrific record. The Bill, the Tony would always say the Bill Evans record is his greatest. That's just a beautiful, beautiful record. The, the two of them, uh, the level of intimacy and interplay and communication between the two of them. Tony always uh, says that's his favorite and with good reason. There's zillions of great albums from the 50s and 60s. I, I love uh, sort of a prelude to the Bill Evans album is an album of duets with Ralph Sharon, voice and piano, about 15 years earlier called Tony Sings for Two, which is a wonderful version of The Man That Got Away. Uh, there's a great trio album called When Lights Are Low. Um, there's an early live album. Of course, Tony at Carnegie Hall is a masterpiece of a double album, almost as much of an imposing masterpiece as Judy Garland at Carnegie Hall. It's a year, came about a year later. Um, there's a live album from Las Vegas that was included in the big Tony complete box set. And I think it's been released, uh, Tony at the Sahara, I think like 64. That's quite terrific. 
there's all kinds of uh, almost every record in the 60s i mean the beat of my heart from the 50s is a terrific record uh tony makes it happen uh yesterday i heard the rain just just one great album after another boy it'd be hard to pick one but if you had to pick one probably uh when i did my book my book on the 50 great pop jazz out well started out to be 50 by the time we were done it had to be like 56 or 57 but we only picked one by tony and uh it was the the bill evans album which is true truly a masterpiece if you're only going to own one tony record that's probably the one even though it doesn't have any of the signature hits on it like you know san francisco or something like that but that's probably the one that i think most uh, tony himself and most of the fans would would say is the greatest you know hmm well, what about a, a song that he either has recorded or you've seen him in these many concerts that you've seen that maybe has the biggest emotional impact on you? Wow. Well, um, well, you know, he, he does that famous version of um, Fly Me to the Moon where mm -hmm. he sings he was singing it a cappella and unamplified which is quite, you know, which is quite a piece of stage, not only a piece of stagecraft, but it's, a, it's an amazing piece of singing and uh, uh, a great piece of communication, which was all, he used to do it totally a cappella. Lately, he does it with Grace Sargent accompanying him on guitar, which is, which is quite amazing. Um, there's all kinds, I mean, boy, there's all kinds of numbers that I happen to love. Uh, I loved when he was doing, Oh, he was doing a great song in the 80s that almost became a hit. It was almost too late for, you know, a guy like Tony to have a hit single. But this really was kind of a hit single and everything but actual sort of chart designation when he was doing When Will the Bells Ring for Me, which is a song by this wonderful old-time piano player and singer by Charles DeFore named Charles DeForest, Charlie DeForest, who was a New York institution for years and years, he would play in these little clubs on the Upper East Side and uh, was a very talented pianist and singer and a, and, a, and really un great underappreciated songwriter. And Tony really loved his work. And Tony did that uh, about three or four songs of his on the album, A Story, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Um, it's a beautiful record. People, people, I mean, people should know all these records. That, that's a singularly uh, exceptional record. And he would do bells just about every night, I think for something like 15 years, he did that song. I heard him do it uh, dozens of times, on, also on every talk show. I mean, every time he did The Tonight Show, he would sing bells. It really is a Tony Bennett sort of career highlight. Um, that really was a thrill, and especially because if you knew Charlie DeForest, uh, who, who totally deserved um, the attention that that song brought him, it really was a, a, a good deal all around, you know? Hmm. Well, tell us about the book. How did Tony Bennett, The Good Life, come together? Well, they contacted me. I'm happy to say it wouldn't. It wouldn't have been. Uh, I wouldn't have had the. I wouldn't have been presumptuous enough to to <laughs> suggest it. And it was a. It was a terrific experience. It's the, just about the only experience I ever had. The only time I ever wrote a book. Usually, when you write a book, it takes you five years longer than you plan, and by the end of it, you're sick of it. But with this particular book, it was just the opposite. It took less time. And by the end of it, I was like, oh, no, you mean we don't get to work on this anymore? It was the <laughs> only project I ever did that I wished could have gone on longer. I wish it had taken longer because it was such a joy to work with him. Um, 
Yeah, all the words in the book in the book are Tony's. I helped him put it together. We we edited it together. Uh, Danny's his son also had some input. We we I got to interview all kinds of people in his life, including Tony Tamborello. I think Tony was still around then, and um, uh, his kids, his family, uh, all kinds of people, um, and anybody that was still around. I'm trying to think how many of those would um, a lot of arrangers who had worked with him, uh, Marion Evans. Uh, Ralph Sharon, of course, all kinds of people that uh, were part of Tony's life and, 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 and would tell the story. And then we would, I, I would, you know, filter through what they told me and, um, you know, tell Tony. And he would say, well, yeah, that's sort of accurate, but the way I remember it is. So, you know, it wasn't like their words were going in, but, you know, they would, Tony would like, you know, bounce back whatever they said. And sometimes he would say, no, that's not the way it happened. It was like this. Um, I talked to a fellow, what the heck was his name? Lynn Arison, could that be right? Who was a much who was an older man by that point? He must have been in his eighties. Um, he was Tony's sergeant in World War II, and he was he conducted the orchestra that Tony sang with in nineteen forty five and forty six. And he actually had a cassette of somehow it was a, an acetate that he had managed to save. And at a certain point, maybe like in the nineteen sixties, he had it transferred to cassette. And the original acetate had disappeared, but he still had the tape. And I got it to an audio engineer, and we saved it. And now that's on the Big Tony box set, because thanks to this guy who had preserved it all these years. So, yeah, stuff like that. And he had all kinds of stories about uh, – I knew a lot of Tony – I got to talk to a lot of Tony's army buddies, you know, from, from uh, World War II, including Jack Elliott, who later went on to write the theme from Charlie's Angels, um, mm -hmm. including also a guy named Jack Wilson – who was one of Tony's best friends when he was like six years old back in Astoria in the early 1930s. And he was still around then. And see, also Tony's sister, um, Mary, and uh, his brother, the brother was still around. But Mary, you know, had worked with Tony. You know, he she was like his bookkeeper and helped with, you know, accounting and stuff like that, kept, kept, uh, helped with that in, in the early part of his career. And she had all these scrapbooks, which were great to find. Oh, and I got to talk to Rosemary Clooney. Of course, I already knew Rosemary, but uh, she had lots of uh, vivid memories of, of working with Tony in the early days. They were, they were closer than people realized. They really, Tony, Tony was like her big brother. I mean, he wasn't, he was two years older and, um, but they, they really, and he just to this day, loves rosemary rosemary was like the great you know the great sister he never had he just absolutely adored rosemary and uh really to this day he he, he remembers her very very fondly yeah good times, good times i haven't mentioned rosemary up until now unfortunately but she was very close to tony were there any surprising things or any revelations as a result of, of writing that book with Tony? Sure. I mean, I have to think of one though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have to, I have to go back and put myself in a, a before and after mindset, you know? Oh God, I'd have to think about it a little more. Something that would spring to mind. Um, the, one of the great things about Tony, which, which people may not realize, um, it's kind of assumed that in an age where, um, you know, say from like 1970 on, most pop stars, most pop singers, you know, people, and, and I'm talking about the, you know, the, certainly the, uh, the better, the longer lasting kind of people, 
you know, people like, say, Michael Jackson or, or, or Prince or uh, to get even higher, somebody like Bob Dylan or, or James Taylor or Joni Mitchell, um, they're all kind of assumed that because these people wrote their own songs and they play their own instruments or, or play some of their own instruments, that, you know, they have kind of more agency that hmm. you can listen to like a Michael Jackson record and think that he had more to do with it because he wrote, you know, he wrote most of the song. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know to what degree, but Michael Jackson certainly wrote most of his bigger hits, you know, the thriller and Billy Jean and stuff like that. Whereas Tony Bennett, you know, has not, is not a songwriter, but the thing that people don't realize is the degree of agency, which he has in the sense of controlling his own music and the sense that he doesn't do a song unless he really knows it and likes it. And, uh, the arrangement and the way it's sung is really, and this is a, which is something that was imparted to him. I think he would say from Frank Sinatra, um, the degree of control and agency that he has is more than people realize. You know, it's not like he just shows up and sings, although that's certainly true of uh, a lot of singers of his generation. You know, they were not expected to have to do kind of like movie actors. All they had to do was show up, learn their lines, and get out. Whereas or even movie directors at that point, they would just, you know, direct the actors and somebody else would edit, somebody else would write. But Tony really was a musical auteur almost from the beginning in a way that not all of his peers were. Certainly Sinatra was, certainly Peggy Lee might have been, but even Rosemary. Rosemary would always tell, say, you know, I, I could tell a good song from a bad song, but cer certainly in her years when she was young, you know, when she and Tony were both working with Mitch Miller, she said, I was astonished because I thought Tony was just a singer like we were. And yet here he was standing up to Mitch Miller when there was a song he didn't like. And she would say, that just kind of blew me away because nobody expected that. You know, nobody thought that a singer would stand up to the guy who's making him famous or who's making him rich and say, no, uh, I don't think that's a good song. Uh, I only want to do, you know, I only want to do th songs that I think are, you know, that have some kind of class and some kind of substance to them. And Tony, you know, we talked a lot about the relationship with Mitch Miller and about, you know, dealing with the commercial music industry in general. But uh, I think that's something that should be better known, which is the extent to which, you know, the fact that you love I Left My Heart in San Francisco, Tony did more than just, you know, show up at the studio one day in 1962 and make a record of it. You know, he knew he knew the guys that wrote it. He made a point to sing it. He uh, he and Ralph Sharon found the song, you know, and, and uh, uh, he really the fact that we love that song uh, has everything to do with Tony. And if Tony had never liked it then we wouldn't know it it's not like they would have taken it to some some it's not likely that any other singer would have been able to put that over the way that tony did or even wanted to you know so i think that's something that ought to be more mm -hmm. talked about well it kind of revelation maybe but yeah. say that again perhaps not quite a revelation but certainly uh you know a lesser known point well with your permission a lot of the things that you said uh, kind of referenced a uh, an email that I got. It was a question for you, and with your permission, I will ask it. Unless it's really of a personal nature, I don't think you have to uh, worry. <laughs> All right, it's not personal. It's, 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 it's of an intimate nature. <laughs> no. no, go ahead. So uh, the, here it is. Uh, this is from John Paradise. It says, Mr. Friedwald, I have a question for you. Well, so far, so good. <laughs> How do you respond to Sinatra haters? 
I have a friend who doesn't like Sinatra. In fact, he seems to despise him. Sometimes I think he say he hates Sinatra because he really hates me. But anyways, he belittles Sinatra because Sinatra didn't write his own songs, which is kind of something you were mentioning about an idea that people have. That's and like, by the same logic, you should hate Leonard Bernstein for not writing the Beethoven Nine Symphonies, or you should hate Laurence Olivier because he didn't write Hamlet. You know, it's the same kind of logic. Um, yeah, writing songs is is actually it finally took me years and years. It, it, it wasn't until I was much older than you are, if if you were in fact born in the eighties, that I even admitted that singer songwriter music is. I you know I I had to be convinced the other way around hmm. that if somebody writes and even Jim, I had this long conversation with Jimmy Webb, which I reference a lot, where in his uh, we we have this is too long to get into on the subject of Tony, but um, the great sea change in music in popular music is not the gap between Elvis and Sinatra. As far as I'm concerned, Elvis and Sinatra are on the same page because Elvis, like Sinatra, was not a songwriter. He sang songs that were done by professional songwriters and brought to him. And exactly what he sang and what he didn't sing is something that Elvis scholars have been debating for a while, and I'm one of them. But um, the great sea change in music is from this what what Jimmy Webb calls the business model, the the artistic model of pure singers and pure songwriters. And in this case, it would be somebody like Sammy Khan, who loved to sing. I'm not saying he didn't sing, but really was not a singer. And Sinatra who's a pure, what he would call a pure, Sammy Khan is a pure songwriter, Sinatra is a pure singer, and this is Jimmy Webb's terminology, and yes, Sinatra has his name on maybe a half a dozen songs, some of which he actually did participate in the writing thereof, but he's really a pure singer. And um, as, as in this, that is the great sea change between this era when, um, singers are supposed to generate their own material and billy Eckstein put it the best way he said this is like you know talking about the new music in the 70s nowadays it's not enough to be a great singer you have to write the f f bomb songs you have to write the freaking songs so it's just a different way of looking at it and both ways i would say that the other way around the idea of pure professional songwriters is a much more productive way. I can maybe name 10 great singer-songwriters or I can name 500 great pure songwriters and 500 great singers. I think it's been much less productive, but even so, I have to admit that the music of Bob Dylan is great, the music of Joni Mitchell is great, the music of James Taylor is great, the music of Jimmy Webb is great. I just, I think the other way around, the the, the, the earlier model is much more productive, but that's just me. Perhaps the, the, the friend who disagrees with John Paradise probably feels exactly the opposite. But yes, um, uh, the, 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 to, to, to my thinking, the the great american songbook what makes it great is this notion of interpretation the fact that both tony bennett and frank sinatra can sing blue skies and have it sound completely different or willie nelson could do blue skies or you know you could uh, do what you could have uh, some brazilian do it as a bossa nova and that is not true of the music of joni mitchell or the music of bob dylan you really can't change those songs around 
You know, it's the, those songs or the Beatles. The Beatles isn't even about the song. It isn't even about the arrangement. It's about the record. It's about the specific record that they created in the studio. Um, other people mess with Beatles songs and sometimes the results are wonderful, but it's a, it's totally secondary. Because the Beatles couldn't care less about other people doing their songs, especially by the age of Revolver and Rubber Soul and Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road. By that point, they had no interest in other people doing their songs. And um, on one hand, it's completely secondary. And at the same time, it's never going to be better than the original. So there's really no point to singing a Beatles song. I mean, yes, it does sound nice. But, <laughs> you know, it's you don't get the same degree of freedom that you get with an Irving Berlin song or a Cole Porter song or a George Gershwin song. There's not the same degree of flexibility. The songs are not meant to do that. It is strictly a secondary, a very, very much after the fact consideration. So that's, a, believe it or not, that's a succinct response to that question. Not a long one. I could give a longer one if they wanted. <laughs> well, John Paradise had a, a great question because he, he really got, uh, it was a passionate answer. I liked it. Another question that we got, somebody said, Will has written for a lot of magazines. What pitches has he most responded to? I, I guess they <laughs> mean, what, what kind of pitches? <laughs> Is he a publicist? This this lady uh, is a, it's, a it appears is a yes yes. <laughs> um, they don't <laughs> publicists make this mistake, and I don't blame them. I mean, they think publicists think of writers as the gatekeeper. We're not gatekeepers. I. It depends. the The pitch I respond to is something I think an editor will go for, and there's no way to figure it out. I wish I wish there was a formula. I wish I could help her. Uh, my editor at the journal likes something that's amazingly good and amazingly unique and that isn't covered to death anywhere else. So that's really hard. I mean, that's why, uh, you know, that's why I do maybe 10 stories a year there at the most, cause it's hard to find stuff like that. You know, <laughs> something that's incredibly important, incredibly wonderful, and it has to be big. It usually can't be some small little interesting thing. Uh, although that's, you know, sometimes that happens too, but, and it, it has to be something that there wasn't just an article about it in the New York times. You know, we don't want to look like we're following the times or, or, or all over the place. We don't want to look like we're just covering the same thing. Everything else is. And I'm sure every editor feels like that. They don't want to see seem like they're just, you know, doing a story on something because everybody else is doing it. Although I don't know about the those uh, blogs and websites and stuff like that. But I'm trying you know, in terms of uh, traditional print centric journalism, like like, you know, the, the like the Wall Street Journal and the. um uh, the New York Times and, and well, you know, I don't have to tell you Washington Post or whatever, but uh, yeah, there's no, there's no real answer. Give me something that's amazingly significant and important and interesting that isn't being covered already. <laughs> Not easy to check all those boxes. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you to our, our, our question submitters. Going back to Tony Bennett, uh, as we said, this is being recorded the day before his birthday if you could say something to Tony Bennett right now, what would you say? Happy birthday and 95 more, you know, <laughs> keep singing. I did an interview. The last, the most recent long interview I did with him was in early 2017 where um, I, I did something I always wanted, which is I, I gathered a bunch of 
TV clips of him from the early days, including one from, it's going to be 70 years now, from uh, 1951, his first, not the first appearance on TV, but but almost, maybe it's the second or third appearance on TV, uh, his first appearance on Ed Sullivan in 1951, and I watched it with him, and he sang Because of You, and then he starts to sing along with it. Now, Tony had just turned 90 at this point, and he starts to sing along with himself at age 25, and he turns to me and says, how do you like that? I'm still singing in the same key. <laughs> well, he, he's always saying he wants to he wants to sing on, uh, at 100. Uh, he's, he's getting there. Yeah, know, yeah. 2002-6. You know. well, we, we look forward to that. Yes. <laughs> Here's to that. Well, <laughs> holding up my kombucha. Right, holding up my water. <laughs> well, what, before we go, is there anything uh, on the I horizon? Think with, I think we, I think we hit everything. What? Anything on the horizon? Yeah, uh, just uh, in closing. Same old, same old. Yeah, <laughs> more clip joints and more New York Adventure Club shows. If you want to find out about those, um, contact Paul and, and he'll give you some uh, inflammation. So yeah, <laughs> inflammation. You inflammation, said inflammation, right? Exactly. <laughs> Well, Wilfried Wald, thank you so much. Yay. Great to talk to you. Great to see you this time. Yeah, great to see you. Hooray. Happy birthday, Tony. Yeah. Happy birthday, Tony. <laughs> okay. Goodbye.